0: Ray Gasser grew up on a farm in southern Indiana, but after marrying his wife Elaine in 1977, the two decided to move to Iowa to start farming from scratch. Over the decades, Ray has grown his farming operation, improved his soil health, and really enjoys working with farmer neighbors to help them do the same.
1: You know, my message has always been when we work together, we all benefit. We're providing soil health benefits with cover crops and and no-till and all that, but we're also working with our neighbors to uh, add to that benefit and and help them at the same time. And, you know, we don't have to be in competition all the time, do we? You know, why don't we think about our community a little bit?
0: (laughs) Iowa farmer, Ray Gasser, reflects on his own soil health journey and his desire to support other farms in the community to do the same on today's episode of Soil Sense. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. On this show, we unpack the ways farmers collaborate to build healthier soils and adapt systems to work on their farm for both sustainability and profitability. Let's get to the root of all that and cover some ground on today's episode of Soil Sense. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Soil Sense. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Hammerich. Joining me, of course, is my co-host, Dr. Abby Wick, and we're sitting down with Iowa farmer, Ray Gasser. Ray and his family farm in the southwest part of the state near Corning, Iowa. He originally grew up on a small farm in southern Indiana and said he visited Iowa for the Farm Progress show one year and really never wanted to leave. So that's where he and his wife moved when they had the chance to start their farming careers. Ray shares today about his adoption of soil health building practices like no-till and cover crops, what he did to survive some tough economic times, particularly in the 1980s, and how his interest in soil health is bringing new economic opportunities to his community. First, though, he shares how he fell in love with farming at a very early age.
1: Um, Grew up in in southern Indiana and actually near Santa Claus, Indiana. Uh, It's the theme park there. Agri-farming is all I ever wanted to do since I was five. That's all I ever remember I wanted to do. So grew up on a very small farm, Uh, worked for a neighbor uh, in high school and out of high school until Elaine and I were married. You know, we're looking for more opportunities than we had there. So lots of small farms there, and most everyone had an outside job, you know, to support their farm and to live on the farm. And, um, you know, that wasn't my goal and our goal. You know, we wanted to be able to drive our living full-time from agriculture and farming, and uh, uh, we made it happen.
0: And Indiana is, uh, you know— well-known farming state what led you to iowa so
1: yeah that's the real so the in 1974 the farm progress show was at webster city in north central iowa and uh three other friends and i went to the farm progress show there you know we camped out you know we were young and you know on a budget and we camped out there uh i just fell in love with uh with the soil and the people and uh when we got back to Indiana, they said that they had to drag me the whole way across Iowa. That I left scratch marks the whole way, <laughs> and uh, so uh, you know the goal was to get back there and, and to to be able to farm, you know, in a in a place that really was well suited for agriculture. And and uh, you know we were lucky to find a a pretty nice spot here in in Southwest Iowa, really in a great neighborhood and. Uh, we're able to grow our family and our farm, you know, from 1977 on. And uh, we've been in that uh, five to 6,000 acres for the last 30 years. I need to talk about the 80s, you know, because we really struggled through that. We're able to pay all our bills, but for four years from 1984 until 19. 19- 89, five years, I slept with my fists like this, you know, because every year we weren't sure we were going to survive it, you know, and and make that work. But we did. And by 1989, we had just leased a new John Deere tractor, you know, helped do some work. And uh, it was in that in the fall. And I realized that, you know what, we're going to make it.
0: During those tough years, you know, when you said you were kind of having to sleep with clenched fists all the time, uh, what allowed you to hold on to hope that it was going to turn around and was going to get better?
1: Well, you know, we just never gave up. And, and a lot of the young people in our area did give up. And so during those tough times, their parents, their grandparents would come to us because we were young and energetic, you know. And uh, they'd say, well, could you help us do this or that? And we would do that. And pretty soon we were renting their land. And a lot of what we farm is within five miles of our house, you know, and it's land in Adams County. And we've been farming that since the eighties because we try to treat people fair and we try to treat their land like like we would ours and, and take good care of it, you know? So that's our story and it's worked.
2: So when, did the, when did the conservation practices enter into your farm, the, the cover crops? And I'm assuming there's no-till and all those wonderful things that go with soil health. Uh, almost from the
1: start. We'd already uh, tested no-till in Indiana with the, with the fellow I was working for, you know. Uh, so I had some no-till experience. But by 1979, we were already no-tilling our corn uh, and doing the tillage, you know, for the corn stocks before our soybeans. For about almost 10 years, we tilled our corn stalks. And by 1990, uh, we started testing no-till, you know, everything. And uh, by 1991, we were 100% no-till on everything we have and have been since, you know, and uh, found it to work really well uh in 2010 the uh, defining moment for us because we thought with our no-till and all the waterways and all the terraces we had put in that we were doing a great job you know keeping the soil in place controlling erosion and those things but we started getting four inch rains in an hour that year and it was uh, gut-wrenching when we watched what happened because when it rains four inches in an hour it takes all the residue that you have, and it floats it away. <laughs> you know? And and our land is not really hilly, but it's rolling. So it moves, you know, the, the residue can move away. And we just uh, decided, Chris and I were watching it, and uh, we just decided right then that we needed to do more than what we were doing. So we started testing cover crops and uh, had a couple hundred acres that first fall doubled it every year, and, and by 2018 or so, we were growing, you know, 3,000, 3,500 acres of cover crops in our operation, uh, finding it a little difficult to get to 100%, you know? There's you know, logistical reasons, but there's also agronomic reasons for us, because we're we're not real comfortable planting our corn into a green cover crop yet you know, we want to make sure it gets terminated. And so if you want to plant corn by the 20th of April, you need to have that cover crop terminated by the 10th of April. So it's pretty much brown when you plant. So that, you know, the growth stage and, and, you know, the ability to be out there, whether it's windy or too wet or whatever it is, makes it difficult for us to do 2,500 or 3,000 acres, but we consistently do about 1,000 acres of cover crops before corn. We think it's really important, would like to do more, uh, just haven't got there yet. it's, It's a process, you know. So one of the other things that we've learned in the last seven years is that we can just spread our cover crops. We don't have to drill them. We began going into our soybeans as they were starting to drop leaves and follow our sprayer tracks. And, and we have a John Deere spreader that, you know, is a high clearance spreader. and We can go in there and, and reasonably well spread 100 feet. That's what our sprayer boom is. So we can stay in those sprayer tracks and not disturb the beans. So we've learned that we could do that. But uh, right after the corn combine for seven years now, uh, we just follow it with that spreader. And, you know, we can do 150 acres an hour. You know, <laughs> So it's a time consuming and it's been successful every year. You know, we just haven't had a failure on that. We might this year, but we haven't had a failure on that. So it's worked really well for us and, and we believe in it. The NRCS has come to our farm the last, uh, not this year, but two springs before to test the water infiltration of our soil. You know, and and we uh, we did it on the farm right here by our house. The first test because it had thirty years history of no till and eleven years at the time history of cover crops, and we were able to demonstrate that we could absorb that one inch of water in two to three seconds, at the most seven to eight seconds to absorb an inch of water in that soil. At the time, three years ago, we had just uh, rented a 320 right south of us that we'd been working with the neighbor a long time on. And uh, it had a history of tillage. Same soil type, half a mile away. That one inch of water took seven to ten minutes to absorb. You know, those are the benefits that we're really seeing, you know, in long-term no-till and, and adding that cover crop and having those roots there in the soil. and and having that surface protection at the same time. And you know, all of our soybeans get planted either either green or nearly green. We have a 10-inch no-till drill that we use uh, to plant all of our soybeans. So uh, we really like that. The weed control is a real benefit to having that cereal rye before you plant beans. It saves us in most cases an in season application of
0: herbicide. And what what kind of cover crops are you working with right now, or have you experimented with different species or different approaches? Yeah,
1: early on, we tried uh, a few different species with the plane, you know, and just didn't find that to work for us. You know, we just weren't, for the cost, we just weren't getting enough growth. So uh, we gave up on the plane and we started spreading our own cereal rye. Uh, Beginning in 2012, we started growing our own cereal rye in in what we call special needs areas that we want to do some conservation work on, you know, so we can do that after rye harvest in the summertime. And uh, so we've been growing our own cereal rye for for cover crops for several years and have sold a little bit. But our son and daughter-in-law, Chris and Shannon, have started up a cover crop business in addition to to that we're supplying our local distillery with rye. We have about 340 acres this year, and it's mostly Chris and Shannon, okay? And, and I need to explain that, but they need approaching 200 acres for a distillery, and we'll have about 140, 160 of acres. We need about 60 for our own seed, and, and uh, they will sell cover crop seed. It's a new business for them. So it's a process and, and we continue to adapt and to learn and, and to find opportunities.
2: So I had a question when you talked about not planting your corn into a living cover crop, uh, it seems like there's two schools of thoughts, ones that do plant corn into a living rye and ones that don't. And so what, is, what experiences have you had that led you to, to terminating the rye before planting corn and how has that worked for you?
1: We tested planting green, okay? And, and for our farm, you know, we, uh, we don't use uh, in-row fertilizer or anything like that. And I think that's one of the benefits to planting green. If, if you can do that, uh, I think you can make it work. Uh, and, you know, what we have learned is that every farm is different, every operation is different, you know, and every field is different. And everyone around the county, around the state, around the nation, around the globe, has a way and has a practice that they found that works. And that's what, what makes us so diverse in agriculture, you know, is that not every practice fits for everyone. But we do encourage people to think about it for the conservation reasons, the soil health reasons, the water quality reasons. It's important to all of us. And, and we need to, you know, protect the soil and clean the water and, and invest in our next generations. Yeah.
0: Well, I know it's probably not a fun topic to talk about this year, but but I am curious about, you know, cover crops when you have a drier pattern. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the big benefits when it's wet, but, uh, you know, how's everything faring when it's dry like this year?
1: Yeah, for us, we've had great luck with it. We had, you know, uh, we were planting in the good moisture. April, we had pretty much normal rain It's about four inches, but May we had two, which is half a normal or a little less than half June so far. Until today, we've had about forty percent of normal, about one point six inches in June. But but at planting, we we tend to plant deeper than a lot of people, you know. And I think that's one of our successes is that we make sure we get it into moisture. And and we are aware of, of uh, letting our cover crops grow too long sometimes, you know. And try to look at the the weather forecast, and we like to let our cereal rye grow between knee high and. Maybe waist-high at the most, but at least knee-high, and boy, it works terrifically to plant beans into that for us, you know, with the single-disc opener and no-till drill. Our stands are just excellent, and as I said, weed control is a real benefit, and and, uh, protecting the soil is another one.
2: And do you, do you plant cover crops every fall or do you look at the weather patterns? If it's been dry all year and it's dry in the fall, do you still plant cover crops or do you say not this year, we're going to, we're going to wait till next?
1: Oh, it's a practice that we, uh, I don't see us changing that because we just see so many benefits to it. You know, uh, w- when you grew up where I did, where the soil was clay and not very good, you know, when you come to this spot where we have uh, feet of good black topsoil that we want to protect. You know that's important to to me and us, and uh, I I don't see us changing. You know, last year was my last full time year of farming. Elaine and I still still doing farming about 500 acres right here around the house because I couldn't go a cold turkey. You know, <laughs> and and you know the agreement was with Chris and now Shannon that you know we would be 50 50 part when we grew at five percent a year until we were 50 50 partners. We did that for 50 50 for four or five years now, when I turned 70, that was the goal that I would slow down. And Elaine retired five years ago because <laughs> she was our office manager. And Chris and Shannon took over all of that too, you know, the last five years ago. So, you know, they they knew the business, they knew how, to, you know, the financial side of it. And I think they, and we have done a good job of integrating that next generation. We're pretty, that's one of the real things we're proud of.
0: And I, th- I think actually one overlooked aspect to all of this soil health stuff are some of the local economic opportunities for like the next generation coming back to the farm. For example, with him and his cover crop seed business, you know, that's an economic opportunity for him or, you know, others may, uh, you hear about young people with cattle that are finding partnerships with row crop farmers to bring cattle on. Can you talk about that a little bit? It just seems like not only is this a way to make farming more fun and interesting and dynamic, but also there's create some economic opportunities for the next generation as well.
1: Yep, and that's exactly what we're we're beginning to do is work with our neighbors that have cattle, you know. And for uh, a couple of years, we were working with one neighbor to do a little grazing on our cover crop crops. Uh, last winter, we had about two hundred and fifty cows grazing some of our cover crop fields. You know, mama cows work great because you know, they will stay in an electric fence, but you have to have water there, you know. Uh, So that's one of the issues, but uh, we really uh, like that. We like working with our neighbors on that. Chris has just worked with another friend of his who has about 100 cows that's going to graze uh, some of our cover crops. And he offered to pay for the seed, you know, and and so that's how, you know, we're uh, trying to benefit everyone and you know my message has always been when we work together we all benefit you know so you know we're uh, we're providing soil health benefits with cover crops and and no-till and all that but we're also working with our neighbors to uh add to that benefit and, and help them at the same time and you know we don't have to be in competition all the time do we you know why don't we think about our community a little bit you
0: <laughs> know so Absolutely. Well, um, as you work with your neighbors, one of the most common questions you get from others about, you know, them wanting to either start or continue their own soil health journey.
1: Well, their their first concern is, you know, adding an extra practice and, and getting it done and the cost. Will they get a return on that investment? And, you know, probably not that first year. But within two or three years, you know, they're going to see a lot of soil health benefits. They're going to see a water infiltration benefits. And it's a learning process. It's, it's a comfort process. And, you know, there are some programs that I really want to talk about. You know, we have state programs in Iowa that on the first 150 acres that you try cover crops on, they're going to pay you $25 an acre for one year, you know, and then a little bit after that. And we also have, you know, a program that we work with on our farm is is uh, for every acre of cover crops that we grow, we get a $5 uh, incentive off our federal crop insurance costs. So that helps. Chris has been working with with our local NRCS, and we both applied for an equip grant to add a species to our cover crop and for uh, uh about 500 acres each uh of us so 1000 acres total they're going to pay us $51 an acre to add one species to our cover crop and it's for 5 years you know but we have to do that you know but we're comfortable that we'll get the job done you know and if you don't then you're you know you won't get paid but uh those are the kind of set incentives that people don't know about, and we do the best we can to share that message in our neighborhood and around the state and around the nation, really, and Chris, too. But we both, you know, told people about what's out there, and and there's no guarantee you're going to get it. And that's that's some of the frustration is, you know, with all those programs, is funding. I I think the IRA funding, I'm hoping that we hold that together and, and add that three or so billion dollars to conservation practices, those incentives. And, and you know, that's what I and we have advocated for with Solutions from the Land, with, uh, with the Iowa Smart Ag Group that I'm involved with, with uh, the Soybean Associations, all those things. We, we talk about, you know, let, let's find some incentives to get people to to try these things. And, and, and one of Chris's frustrations and and mine too is people will try you know this for one year and say oh they don't want to put the effort in or they'll just say oh it didn't work and Chris says well did you really give it a fair test and you know did you really give it a try and so you know I would encourage people to not give up on it right away and don't say I'm just going to take the money for one year you know don't do it on a large scale but try it at a scale that you could test and and. Prove it up for what you do and find practices that benefit your farm and your neighborhood and your soil.
2: So for those growing corn and soybean in, in your area or other areas in the corn belt, do you recommend that they start using cover crops and by interseeding corn and going to soybean or by, by flying it on into soybean and going to corn?
1: I, I would recommend that they uh, plant the, the cereal rye, which is the, the easiest and the most durable and after corn harvest and before if they want to go into a growing crop and get it established a little more quickly. But, you know, as I said, we've learned that, you know, we can do it on a a budget, you know, instead of having that $20 an acre drill cost or $15 an acre plane cost, we can spread that for six bucks an acre, you know, and add that to our seed cost of 10 or so. So for 15 or under 20 bucks an acre, we can have a cover crop that on our farm works, you know. We have to find ways to make it economical and provide those incentives, I think, to get people to try it.
0: Well, I wonder what, what questions, Ray, are you asking yourself right now as you think about your own soil and your own soil health? Uh, what questions are you asking, you know, yourself or, or perhaps your family about, you know, kind of what's next in your own soil health journey?
1: So so we're evolving, you know, and with, you know, Chris and Shannon growing, you know, the, their own seed and growing rye for the distillery. That gives us a, a summer harvest that, you know, helps us with uh, our, our planting, you know, timing in the spring and helps us with our harvest because we're harvesting those acres in July instead of September, October. So it it takes a little load off there, but... When we grow seed, you know, rye for seed, we plant a mix of cover crops, you know, in there, maybe an eight or ten way mix that has legumes in it and, you know, brassicas and all kinds of other good things to build that soil health. And also considering, I just talked with Chris yesterday and he's planning on, you know, working with our neighbors and and getting a mix out there that they can effectively graze this fall boy well, that's the, that's the next step and, and it's about being profitable, you know and and what can we do to diversify our farm and to you know continue to make a living you know and, and that's the bottom line for everyone, you know they've got to make a living there
0: And over time, do you feel like you've had to sacrifice yields to pursue these soil health building practices?
1: Uh, we've, we've won a lot of yield contests a long time ago when we used to enter, you know, uh, with no-till. And uh, I actually won the state no-till in 1991. And we work with, you know, some of our neighbors who are younger and, and you know, do some practices with them and, and uh, know what their final yields are and their practices and compare them to ours. And, you know, and uh, we're very competitive.
2: Well, and I wonder too, you know, some of that being competitive in that, in that area of, of crop yield. I mean, it sounds like you've stacked a lot of practices. You have a lot of different conservation practices going on. So can you run through like a, not a bulleted list, you know, but, but just the, the practices you're using on your farming operation that you feel when put together give you the best possible opportunity each year for your crop?
1: Sure. Timing is everything, you know, getting it planted on time, having drainage tile that your soil will drain and not have those wet spots that we used to have here. Uh, you know, when we first moved here, uh, we've got four and a half million feet of drainage tile in the land that we farm. You know, our neighbors have tiled and we've tiled and uh, that has made a huge difference, that internal drainage and being able to get out there is, is, is Probably one of the biggest benefits, and you know, as we've learned that you know, building that soil health and building that structure in the soil that you know helps so much to to not only hold the moisture but allows our soil to drain at the same time. You know, uh, so it's uh, it's a real benefit. We don't make tracks that even in a wet harvest. You know, our soil is is got structure to it, and we can go out there with our combines. When uh, 40 years ago and you had tillage, you couldn't be out there at all, you know? And, and we're not making tracks because we have, you know, that that surface protection. We have the roots in the soil and we have that structure in our soil that, that carries us, but it's not compacted, you know? So I, I think the, the water infiltration test is the greatest example uh, about compaction and water holding capacity and being able to get out there. Because, you know, the mindset 40 or 50 years ago was that you needed to till it to loosen the soil up. And you know what we've learned? That's the worst thing we can do.
0: (laughs) Well, right. To wrap up here a little bit, let's just uh, give you the floor to anything that either we didn't discuss or that you want to emphasize. Any message you'd have to other farmers out there that are curious or interested in soil health? Yeah. Any message you want to share?
1: Well, uh, so many of the uh, organizations that I've been involved with over the years, you know, whether starting out with Iowa, you know, locally with economic development or Iowa Soybean Association 20-some years ago, uh, you know, it's about uh, interacting with people and having a conversation and learning what's working for them. And I've got to do this not only locally but statewide, nationally, and globally, you know. And I've seen agriculture all over the world and, you know, I've learned a little bit from every place I've been. So volunteering is a great thing, you know, and and take advantage of that if you can. Uh, Learn from other people. Be open-minded about what's going on. And, and, you know, maybe try something different, you know, every year. Not at a large scale, but just a little bit to see if it's going to work, you know. And if it works, then you grow from there.
0: Love that advice and capturing some of the community aspects to building healthier soils. Definitely some time-honored wisdom there from Ray Gasser. Thank you so much to Ray for being on the show today. Now, before we close, I'd like to thank the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this Farmers for Soil Health series of the Soil Sense podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Abby Wick, Dr. Olivia Cayouette, and myself with support from the United Soybean Board, the University of Missouri Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and the Soil Health Institute. If you're at all interested in what soil health looks like in practice and on the farm, I highly suggest you subscribe and follow this show on your favorite podcast app. Listen to some previous episodes and leave us a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You might also want to check out the Farmers for Soil Health website at FarmersForSoilHealth.com. We'll put it all in the show notes. Until next time, stay curious, keep collaborating, and don't forget to take a minute to stop and smell the soil. Have a good one.